Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Longtime listeners of this public affairs program know that we offer thoughtful and lively conversations with Fordham University faculty, visiting scholars, and outside guests on a number of social, cultural, political, and literary topics. Although I'm the primary host, you may be surprised to know that occasionally the guest hosts you hear on Fordham Conversations are Fordham students who are journalists in training in the WFUV newsroom. As a matter of fact, news director George Bodarki doesn't even use the term student in front of the title reporter. That's because the structured multimedia training they get at WFUV gives them the same access to important lawmakers, politicians, and newsmakers that New York City's seasoned journalists have access to. And often many of these Fordham journalists go on to successful careers in the competitive radio market right after graduation. Well, today we'll hear from WFUV and Fordham journalists Lauren Namey, Aaron McLaughlin, and Taylor Zimmerman, who all hosted past shows. Aaron spoke with a Long Island resident who was in Egypt right after riots broke out earlier this year and President Mubarak resigned. Then we'll hear from Taylor Zimmerman, who finds out the appeal of a Fordham class that offers an innovative musical approach to teaching poetry. But first, WFUV's Lauren Namey sat down with Fordham alumni and NPR correspondent Lynn Neary to talk with the veteran reporter about her illustrious career. You were born and raised in Crestwood, New York, and then you got your bachelor's degree in English here at Fordham. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And uh, I got to ask, a student at Fordham here now, has the campus changed since you were here? It has changed. And it's it's an interesting combination of change and um, remaining the same because you've added dorms in particular, I noticed, the dorms uh, over near where the train tracks uh, are and the new library. Um, and that area is really interesting because... Uh, the dorms are beautiful. The library is beautiful. It's 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 a great addition, and yet it didn't feel like it uh, really detracted from what was already there. It really still looks very beautiful there and very open space, which is what I remember. And why journalism? What what did you like about journalism? It took me a while to figure out exactly what I wanted to do, and then finally, um, and just before I went into radio, I was studying acting. And I really loved acting, but um, it bothered me that I wasn't doing something more socially responsible. And I realized that I needed to do something that I felt like had some kind of, you know, I guess, lasting impact or some kind of uh, effect on society. And journalism seemed to answer that uh, that part of my uh, yearning, I guess. I knew I was a pretty good writer. I knew that, as I said, I could, I could uh, perform, I'd get on the air. And so I kind of put those three things together, and that's how I came up with... Um, uh, radio news. And then after working at some smaller stations, you ended up working for NPR. What was that transition like? Uh, well, in between, when uh, the first station I worked at in, in uh, North Carolina, WRMT, was a commercial station. And I really um, didn't know anything about public radio at that time. But a friend of mine told me, uh, I think you'd be good in public radio. So I started sort of paying attention. And um, one afternoon, one very sort of gray cold, rainy afternoon in North Carolina. I was sitting in my uh, apartment, and I had the radio on, and uh, all of a sudden I heard um, this woman's voice come on, and she was doing a talk show from the White House. And she was at that time it was Jimmy Carter was the president, and she was doing a talk show with Jimmy Carter, and I thought, what is that? That is amazing. And it was uh, the first time I ever heard NPR. It was Susan Stamberg, who was the first host of uh, All Things Considered. And uh, and that really got me intrigued by it. So I started looking for a job in public radio. I got a job at uh, WSU in Columbus, Ohio, and I was there for a couple of years. 
And from Columbus, I went to NPR in Washington. And um, by that time, I'd had about three to four years experience in my belt. So under my belt. So I felt uh, uh, I felt okay going into NPR. Um, But, you know, it was just very exciting because now I was reporting. I was actually a, a newscaster. But here I was at a national news organization. We were reporting news on a national and international level. Um. I became a newscaster uh, uh, just before the Falkland Wars broke out um, and uh, as uh, Beirut was under siege at that time. And um, so it was a very – it was kind of scary because here I was reporting on these major international events, uh, but it was really thrilling also. And so what inspired you to go into public radio was All Things Considered, and then you ended up hosting weekend all things considered right yes yeah what was that like uh well that was a great job i loved hosting weekend all things considered it was so much fun um my first co-host was a guy named alex chadwick uh who i think is one of the best uh writers who ever uh worked at npr he's not there right now but um and he was just very we had a very creative crew at that time it was small much smaller than it is now um but we just were a very creative group of people. And um, and then I stayed on, after Alex left, I stayed on for another few years. And uh, at that time, I guess it was during that time that some some major uh, events in the world were happening. The, the, the fall of communism, the release of Nelson Mandela, uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre, all these things happened while I was hosting Weekend, All Things Considered. Um, and uh, it was just extraordinary to uh, be able to report on these things. And tell me about developing NPR's first religious beat. We really, I want to correct you because we, it's really a religion beat. And I, I make that correction because um, if you say it's a religious beat, then it sounds like you yourself are religious, uh, whereas really I'm covering religion. And um, I make that distinction because a lot of times people would refer to it as the religious beat. And we always wanted to say, no, we're, we're not, a, we're not, a, this doesn't, because we're covering religion doesn't uh, uh, say one thing or another about uh, what our faith is or what our beliefs is. We want to be able to look at religion um, uh, both um, from a cultural perspective uh, and a faith perspective and also from a political perspective. Um, so it was, it was really fascinating because it allowed me to, um, to do reporting on politics in, uh, because it was at a time when uh, it was in the 90s and I was reporting on the intersection of religion and politics and the influence of um, conservative, uh, uh, religious conservatives on uh, the politics of the country, on the Republican Party. That was one part of it. The other part of it was I think more sort of feature reporting on people of different faiths, and I, that was it was very fascinating. It was kind of uh, almost I felt like an anthropologist when I would go in and to different uh, uh, houses of worship and uh, and uh, learn about what people were believing in and why and what it, what religion meant to them. So a program about religion, not a religious program. Right, exactly. And did you or do you have a particular interest in religion? Yes, I've I've always, you know, I was raised Catholic, obviously, and, uh, well, not necessarily obviously, but yes, I was raised Catholic. I uh, went to Catholic school for uh, my entire life, Um, so I've always uh, had an interest in it and lots of questions about it and many struggles about it uh, through the years. And uh, so it's, 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 it's always been a subject that I've found kind of fascinating, what people believe in and why and how it affects the way they act in the world. 
And Lynn, now as an arts correspondent, you cover books and publishing and get to interview authors. Is that something that you've always wanted to do? Uh, well, you know, it just, it's very, it's a very natural progression. It wasn't something that I set out to do. Uh, but, uh, at one point I was on the arts desk and at one point my editor came and said, uh, we really are deciding that we want to have a beat, uh, a book beat, a book's beat and a publishing beat, somebody to cover publishing because the business is going through big changes right now. And it, it was interesting because as soon as she said it, I thought, Oh, yeah, it makes total sense for me to do that because I've always done book interviews uh, throughout the time that I've been on inter on NPR, you know, as a host. And uh, even as a reporter on the arts desk, I, I was the one who probably um, did the most book pieces. So um, it just felt like it just felt like a natural thing for me to do. It's not something I actually sought out. But once it was proposed to me, I liked the idea a lot. I find that interesting because you majored in English and then you went to journalism and now it's come full circle back to English. It's like your career now is a culmination of everything that you've done. Yeah, well, it does feel it is it is it is great that it that it is uh, happening right now because um, uh, it does feel exactly as you said that I've come full circle. And doesn't it make total sense for an English major to be doing this? Um, it's a lot of fun because I I get to, I mean, the part of it that's really fun is getting to talk with uh, authors that I've loved over the years. That was WFUV's Lauren Namey talking with NPR correspondent Lynn Neary. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead. The news you get on WFUV is news you can trust. It's news that doesn't insult your intelligence. At WFUV, we don't waste your time with sensational news stories. And the combination of NPR News with WFUV's own news department brings you the information you need from around the world and from your own backyard. Your support makes it happen. Please contribute now, toll-free, at 877-WFUV-907 or online at WFUV.org. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today we're hearing some of the past shows that were developed, produced, and hosted by WFUV journalists in training. Not so long ago, Egypt exploded with emotion after Hosni Mubarak resigned as president. This followed mass protests resulting from what was considered Mubarak's heavy-handed rule. Fordham's Aaron McLaughlin talks with Long Island resident Louis Papa. He had just boarded a plane back to school where he was studying Arabic at the American University of Cairo. President Mohammed Hosni Mubarak has decided to step down as president of Egypt. Egypt exploded with emotion after Hosni Mubarak resigned as president yesterday. Long Island resident Louis Papa got to see the revolution firsthand. Today we'll hear from Fordham University graduate Louis Papa. Just yesterday, he boarded a plane back to Egypt where he's studying Arabic at the American University of Cairo. How did you get into Egypt? Well, I left on January 27th at night. I arrived at Cairo International at 6 p.m. This is January 28th in Egypt. When I arrived, the government had turned off all the cell phone service and had blacked out the internet. So I arrived totally in the dark as to what was going on. I was aware that there was a, a protest going on in Egypt and I had heard that it was pretty big, but I wasn't, uh, I guess sometime in the 11 hours that I was in flight, the situation had escalated and the State Department put out 
uh, travel warning, and Delta canceled every single one of their flights to Egypt except the one that I was on. And so you, when you got there, you really had no idea what you were getting yourself into. Yeah, it was, um, it was very surprising to me how, how bad it was. Uh, when I got there, they were burning cars everywhere, and uh, the streets were filled with debris. There's these barricades that line the streets, these uh, wrought iron barricades that they ripped right out of the ground and threw into the middle of the road. So it's it sounds it's shocking. It sounds shocking, at least to hear. Is, yeah. is that kind of how it felt? It was it was really surreal for me because I have lived in Cairo for a little while. I, I lived there for about three four months, so I'm familiar with what the city looks like. I'm familiar with certain areas, and it's really strange to see those same spots now lined with military vehicles and uh, heavily vandalized. I mean, one of the things that sort of surprised me about Egypt is that uh, in Cairo, I rarely saw any graffiti. You see a lot of graffiti in a lot of American cities, particularly like in the poorer areas, but you don't see a lot of it in Cairo. But now you're seeing a lot of very bold graffiti saying very bad things about the president, uh, written in very public places, and uh, it's just something that you didn't really see before. So this kind of started in earnest on January 25th. Yeah. Did you, in your time there, kind of feel anything percolating before then, was this a, or was this a total shock? I know that it, it, this protest had been planned months in advance, apparently. Uh, but American students... <laughs> going to the American University in Cairo, who really don't have a tremendous amount of interest in this sort of stuff, had no idea. So I never got the impression that the Egyptians would ever do anything like this. They've been living under this this government for 30 years, and they tend to have a sort of attitude of, you know, sort of accepting things as they are. Uh, they're, they're not the... I mean, it sounds silly to say that they're not the kind of people to go out into the streets and and fight like this, but they they really never gave me that impression when I was over there. But I think a lot of it had to do with fear. They're just afraid of the government that they live under. Uh, actually, last year, an American student at AUC was arrested by the secret police for uh, participating in a political organization with Palestinian students who were criticizing the government. He was released shortly after his arrest, but, uh, you know, this is the kind of government that they live with, that any kind of dissent, even if it's, uh, you know, a small organization through a student protest, is going to be met with some kind of scrutiny. So, I do find I found it really surprising that they were able to shake off this fear that uh you know you'd see a group of 20 men jump on top of a tank without a moment's hesitation. All right, and so what about kind of you you'd sort of touched on this but you know day-to-day -day living for particularly people in Cairo I, I had heard that, you know, certain things had been shut down, like it, you couldn't get money out of the ATMs because, you know, the banks were closed. Uh, most ATM machines, if they weren't off, they had been completely destroyed. 
so getting money uh, was going to become a, a problem, and it's probably going to be a problem when I go back. A more immediate issue, I guess, is safety. Right, and so some people outside of you know the square, some people who aren't involved in the protests, have criticized the protesters for you know essentially shutting down certain aspects of Egyptian life, like you know tourism and um, the economy. Do you did you get any sense that there was um, that the protesters cared about that, or is that you know the last thing on their minds when they're trying to take down a government? Honestly, the the only person that I would blame for what's happening in Egypt right now is Hosni Mubarak. The the people that I was in contact with, they, they were demonstrating in a completely peaceful manner. Uh, they were loud, but they weren't violent. And the night that, the day after I arrived, the president, after having shut down cell phone and internet service, uh, sent out his police thugs to conduct lootings in the area and... Uh, then the day after that, he paid people to pretend to support him and ride into the square on horses and camels and attack people with whips and sticks and swords. And this is the same guy who says that he's the reason that Egypt isn't falling into anarchy right now. Well, the only source of anarchy in the country right now is President Hosni Mubarak. What's your reaction to Mubarak's resignation? All right, so he resigned. I mean, I'm curious as to what um, it's going to look like now uh, because I'm not sure if there is some sort of a... I don't know if there's some system of transition that they they have in place. Uh, And even if they do, I'm not sure if regular people are going to accept it. But the impression I got when I was there that the only thing that they really cared about was that he stepped down. And I don't know if that necessarily means that they take anybody else, but I think that him stepping down is going to be a huge uh, step forward for the whole country. So this is it's, this is what the protesters wanted. Do you think this is the end of this, or you know, do you think what, what do you think happens next? I mean, I know you can't predict the future, but considering that this is what they were demanding and now they've got it. Where do you think it goes from here? Well, every Egyptian has a different opinion about what Egypt should be like. So I wouldn't be surprised if this continued in a smaller scale, but now instead of sort of this enormous unified political, uh, you know, nationalistic kind of rallies, you'll probably see just smaller ones of different groups trying to get their voice heard. I mean... You know, the the country hasn't had any semblance of a democracy for the last 30-some-odd years, probably more. Uh, so there's a lot of groups now that are going to be very interested in throwing their hat into the political arenas. What do you think the chances are that what comes next will be a real democracy, which is what it seems like the protesters want? I mean, I might be cynical about it, but I, I think the, the chances are, are pretty low. I think there's something wrong with... The, the military forming a transitional government, which, I mean, they, they could just become dictators for another 30 years if they wanted to do that. I mean, they certainly have the weaponry for it. But most democracies have a robust middle class, well-educated people, uh, and there just isn't a whole lot of that in Egypt. There's this 
enormous gap between the rich and the poor. And if you don't have a high school education at least, you probably don't have any education at all. So there's this huge gap between a, a very well-educated, wealthy elite and uh, everyone else is sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, so I, I don't know if in that kind of environment you can have a good democracy, but this is nonetheless a, a good direction for them to be going in. Uh, I mean, at least now they know that whatever their future is going to be, it's not going to be one with Hosni Mubrak running the, running the country. That was WFUV's Aaron McLaughlin speaking with Long Island resident Louis Papa about his first-hand account of the revolution that took place in Egypt at the beginning of 2011. Not so long ago, I did a show on the Fordham class, Rock, Pop, and the Poetic Tradition. It was taught by Professor Scott Levin, who took the poetry of writers like William Blake and T.S. Eliot and combined them with musicians such as Bob Dylan and Eminem. It was an interesting and fun show, and I've received a lot of positive feedback on it. The only downside was not having enough time to add an interview by WFUV's Taylor Zimmerman, who, by the way, came up with the idea for the show. For her part, Taylor interviewed Fordham student Alex Dorsky, who was taking the class. Alex seemed to enjoy the idea of a class that combined pop culture with the literary text. So what is your major and what requirement is this class filling for you? I'm an English major, so this is just one of my electives. Um, why did you decide to take Mr. Levin's class? What sparked your interest? Well, I heard he was a great teacher, and I also love music. If I could choose any field to go into, it would be music. And last semester... I took a class on music and I took a class on poetry and this seems to be a synthesis of the both. So, How does this class compare to your other uh, English classes you've taken? Um, it's a lot more laid back because it's like half English majors and half people are taking it because it's a pretty interesting class. So it's a really nice and easy atmosphere to have discussions and there's a lot less judgment I guess because there's it's like less heightened kind of thing to be all literary terms and whatever. Do you think that kids in your class get more excited about the subject matter using contemporary music rather than just traditional poetry? Yeah, especially Radiohead. Everybody, I mean, we went through a lot of bands that people liked, but when we went, we did Radiohead, there were people who were like diehard fans, so they got really, really into it. What song by Radiohead did you guys study? Two plus two equals five. Do you remember what? Uh, poem that you compared it to? No. I don't think that we went over a poem that class. I think we spent the entire class discussing the song. And what was the uh, message, the main message of the song that you guys learned about, if you remember? Um, I think it was basically how things don't make sense and like at home things can be however you want them to be. Uh, what of the artists that you're learning about did you listen to prior to the class, if any of them? Um, I don't like Radiohead very much, but I like Built a Spill, and we did Arcade Fire, and we did Grateful Dead, and I love all those bands. Can you give me an example of a comparison between one of those songs and um, a poem that you guys learned about? Yeah, we did the love song of J.A. Proofrock by T.S. Eliot and Arcade Fire, We Used to Wait. And we're, it's kind of talking about the superficiality of life and 
arcade fires, we used to wait, and it's talking about like we used to wait for letters, we used to wait for all these personal interactions, and everything was personable. And now that we have technology, and now that everything's sped up so fast, you don't have to wait. The waiting process is not something that we have to cope with anymore. And in Jay Proof Rock, he, it's kind of, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I can analyze that poem, but he's kind of giving himself a pep talk in the mirror about like going out and he feels kind of like an outsider and when he goes out he notices how everything's kind of superficial he talks about how women are talking about Michelangelo and he talks about how he's gonna wear the bottoms of his trousers rolled and he's balding and he notices all these materialistic kind of things about himself and about other people, but he can't really get to the core of things because he doesn't quite fit in. And it's kind of like the same thing about superficiality, material, materialism, like just what's on the surface. Do you think that comparing these poems to uh, popular music helps you kind of relate to these poems a lot better and helps you understand them? Well, it's interesting because I've like, because I'm an English major, I've taken a lot of classes where we've done poetry. I've taken, like, 18th century literature classes. I've taken, last semester, I took a class called Poetry Daily, and we did a lot of the poems that we did in this class. And it's interesting because it's not that I'm learning something different. It's that I get to look at the poem in a different way and shed a different light on it because it gives you a lens to look at it through the way that Mr. Levin organizes the class is by like romantic, modernist, whatever. And you get to kind of see how a song that you would never consider to be a romantic song or a modernist song or a postmodern song could fit into a category with a poem that's, I don't know, 200 years old. Um, what's the most surprising thing that you've learned in this class? Like what song maybe you didn't think would go under one of those categories that was under like the romantic romanticism or something like that? Well, I think the most surprising thing I learned in the class, I mean, all the, all the songs made sense by the under there if you looked at the lyrics, but the most surprising thing I learned was, like I've always listened to Grateful Dead since I was young, but like the song Ripple, I didn't realize how metaphorical and how much meaning there was behind their words and a lot of the songs I feel like we spend almost like so much time agonizing over what everything means but with that song I felt like it really was poetry and a lot of the songs feel like there's a break between song and poetry but that one really really like struck home in like poetry department I guess. So what do you think that you're really getting out of this class like what do you think that you're going to take away from it? Well, I get really excited for this, this class because it's kind of a synthesis of my interests because I like music and I like literature. So I feel like having the language and the vocabulary to talk about them both together is going to be helpful and nice, especially in my future if I get to go into either one of these two fields. And do you think that using popular culture to learn about um, kind of like traditional academic subjects is a helpful way to help? have kids learn and like relate to the subject matter yeah especially for the my friends in the class who are not English majors I feel like it because literary terms are confusing and kind of annoying to have to familiarize yourself with but if you get to talk about it in terms of lyrics it's a lot easier so I feel like it's easier to draw connections and to be less intimidated by poetry because you're looking at lyrics and poetry as like kind of interchangeable 
and that way you can like draw an analysis from both of them and not not feel like you're a poet or analyzing poetry or something like uppity or whatever it's really down to earth and it's easy and fun and it's really exciting to do because we like the songs we get excited about the songs do you think this is a trend that you're we're going to start seeing a lot more college classes I hope so. Every time I've had the opportunity to take a class that has to do with music, especially if it's rock, I've taken it and I've loved it. And people I've talked to have been trying to get into both of the classes I've taken that have been about rock and roll. So, so it seems to be pretty popular among yeah. the students. And what are you most excited to learn about in this class? Um, I don't know. I guess how to write an essay that involves both music and poetry because... I've always liked music, I've always liked lyrics, and there are artists who I like more for their lyrics than their music, like Bright Eyes. <laughs> but now I get to actually write about songs as other poetry, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to learn how to do that. Okay, and any one last words you want to add about the class and what you're learning and what maybe you think other students might be getting out of it who aren't as good at English? Yeah, if you can take Scott Levin, do it. He's a golden god. <laughs> My thanks to WFUV's Taylor Zimmerman and Fordham student Alex Storsky. I'd also like to thank WFUV's Aaron McLaughlin and Lauren Namey. When you become a member of WFUV, you're helping develop the talents of the next generation of ethical, inquisitive, professional, and unbiased journalists who train in the WFUV newsroom. Make a contribution to WFUV at 877-WFUV907 or contribute online at WFUV.org. Stay right here, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.